Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, it is the after show, darker side of the after show, I think, to be more specific. I am Lukey. I'm always joined with Sean, and I'm very excited to talk about Mitch Blood Green. This one is going to be fun. This is going to be fun, isn't it? I was uh, very excited to be speaking about this one with yourself because I knew how excited you were on the after show last week to discuss Mitch Blood Green and his life and his stories, and I suppose... What what did you take away from it first and foremost, given what you already knew about him? Well, I think that like for me, I kind of like took this as like an American history lesson. So I looked at like the past and I kind of looked at how society was changing because so I'm going to go kind of deep to start this. But it's like the 60s in America, we were kind of breaking traditional norms of the households from like what it was to maybe free thinking. And then coming out of that, we had kind of like the Reagan era in America. And when Reagan era, the Reagan era hit, we started to see an uprising in gangs for whatever reason, predominantly black gangs. And then you have a guy like Mitch Green, who's kind of coming around while like NWA and rap music is being born. It's like this guy is a time capsule of a Dave Chappelle character from the haters ball. It's like he, he was what was cool in a different era, but it's so long ago it just looks weird now. And I'm sure that's how modern rappers are going to look 40 to 50 years from now. It's like, it was so time specific who Mitch green was, but to me, he was like the first generation of kind of like the modern rapper or the modern gangster figure. I almost view like a Takashi six, nine, a rap figure as like the fifth generation of following in the lineage of Mitch Green. Like he was four generations before we get to a Takashi 6ix9ine. And my first thoughts were like, this is a story of exploitation 
of a lack of resources, of a lack of education, and a big, tall guy who the only way he knew how to get by in the world was to be intimidating, and that people saw that and used it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you look, you've got to look at his background, really, growing up um in in very difficult parts of of new york i think was the the most prominent thing for me was that i didn't really know a lot about his his history and when finding out that he was in the black spades and he was part of the black spades and it was sort of the film the warriors now i'd seen the film the warriors before doing mitch's story and the fact that he kind of lived that life and he, he says it himself in a quote that we we put into the episode about how he lived a life like the warriors it's like all you've got, if you didn't live in that period of time, you didn't live in any part of New York in the suburbs, then you won't really get the, the visualisation of it. And the only way to portray it is by comparing it to, to something like that. And that, that is probably a really good comparison is to think of the film The Warriors and think of, you know, Mitch Blood Green's character and persona being in the midst of that. And, and the only way to get by in, in the 1970s in a really rough neighbourhood was to... It was either to eat people or be eaten alive, and and that's the part of the metaphorical way of me saying that you've either got a fight or you're gonna you're just gonna basically be taken advantage of, and that's what he had to do from the beginning, from a, from a very young age in his teens, so is to basically get himself involved with the the wrong type of people, but it was the only way to survive, and that's what he felt was the the right thing to do at the time. I think the other thing that I was looking at is I was like watching Wu Tang videos this morning, and it's like. Those New York subway stations look really unsafe in the 80s, 90s. Like they just look very uninhabited. You're talking about the movie The Warriors, but there's like multiple iconic Hollywood films where it's like you get on the train and then all of a sudden, if you're like a nerdy guy or a law abiding citizen, someone hassles you if you're on too late. And it's like this is the world Mitch Green comes from is like when people are out too late and he senses danger, he is the danger on the train. And he was created from, at one point, being the person that was victimized in those same circumstances. It's like it was inherently passed down. And then from this chaos, he becomes a boxer. I think what I learned from doing this episode about Mitch Green was how talented he was as an amateur. And um, people might think I'm, I'm not really sort of looking into the depths of things but I only go off what I knew of him at the time. And like most people before listening to this episode, my experiences of, of Mitch Blood Green were sort of quite limited. And I kind of only really knew him for being a professional boxer that not only fight Mike Tyson in the ring, but he fought him out of the ring. And that was as far as my knowledge went and my education went on, on Mitch Blood Green. But then when you get into the depths of what he was really like and you look at the historical news articles on him and you look at everything that, that's around, the literature uh, by people that were around at the time and lived through it with him, it really gives you a, a great insight into who he really was. But it's his boxing career that surprised me a lot. You know, four times Golden Gloves winner in New York and was he was on course to go for a fifth was on course to go to the 1980 olympics before the usa boycotted it and i was like wow this this guy actually had all the markings of of a future world champion and 51 wins by knockout with headgear so i mean it was like he was he was in as you said if he was a modern fighter this would be the guy an Eddie Hearn or a Bob Arum or someone would invest money in. He was a compelling story. And I think that that's part of it because of 
the antics that surround him. I think the talent component of Mitch Green always get because like I'm a big Mike Tyson guy. So the Tyson fight to me, Mitch Green is a big win in Tyson's career. People always try to downplay it. But Mitch Green kind of means a lot to me because when Tyson fought him and I watched it, it was like Tyson was a cartoon character and Mitch Green was a cartoon character and they were both from New York. And even though I had it on a VHS tape and the fight had happened, the first time I saw it, I saw how much they both wanted to win the fight. And I feel like when people go and revisit Mitch Green and they know that he didn't go on to have this illustrious career, they just write it off as he was a nobody, but he was actually a really good fighter who just couldn't get out of his own way. Yeah, he was. He, I think he cut his nose off to spite his face quite a few times throughout his boxing career. And I think the fight with Mike Tyson in particular, jumping forward to that, I think was one of them moments where he, he, he if you've not heard the story already or you not listened to the episode, then, then go and do it because you're about to get the spoilers of it. So what happens there is obviously he he finds out Tyson's being paid i think it's something ridiculous like $650,000 and he's only going to walk away with something like 20 or 30 grand uh, as a as a result of that fight and he, he literally you know he, he he's in the dressing room and he don't want to come out to fight he's like look i want my money i want my money now and he's refusing to go out to fight Mike Tyson not because he doesn't want to fight Tyson but because he feels like he's being shafted by by Don King and and this is where all these hate towards Mike Tyson stems from is is this a this moment really uh, where he feels like he's not he's being undervalued and he's not being paid what he, he should have been paid and this is a recurring theme for me this this rivalry with Tyson all starts from here it starts from the fact they're both from New York it starts from the fact that they're both trying to make the way in the world in terms of the heavyweight division and it stems from the fact that he feels like he's being undervalued and underpaid and when I mentioned his amateur career four times Golden Gloves winner I mean his accolades if it, correct me if I'm wrong Luke I think he's got he had better accolades than Mike Tyson throughout his amateur career. Um, and again, it's just off the, off the top of my head, so don't criticise me if I've got that completely wrong. Um, but if that's the case, then, you know, Mike Tyson was obviously in a, in, a, in a different... He was handled differently than what Mitch Green was, I think is what I'm trying to get at. And because of the way he, he, they were both handled, Mitch Green was being undervalued by the people around him at the time and underpaid. And Mike Tyson was being sort of skyrocketed and fast-tracked to the top because they could see that next heavyweight champion right there. So for Mitch, that, that hate for Tyson stems right from, from that moment. I think that to hit on what you said, Mitch, I think, thought that he was Mike Tyson. He wanted to be Mike Tyson. He saw himself as Mike Tyson, a cultural icon. And I think he resented everything Mike Tyson went on to become. And he felt what Mike Tyson was becoming going into that fight. And I think that that initial, the other thing that I noticed is Custy Amato created an environment of love and trust with Tyson. Mitch Green had a competitive environment around him full of delusion, paranoia, and fear. You see how two different styles of the environments around you can shape your life experience. And I think there was a lot of resentment from Mitch Green because he looked over at a like-minded individual who was very similar, very intimidating, just like himself, black man from New York. And I think Tyson was everything that Mitch Green wanted to be or saw himself as. 
Yeah, I, I think you've nailed it. I think you've nailed that on the head. I think that is exactly where the, this resentment stems from. Uh, that and the fact that he could see that Tyson was getting paid a hell of a lot more money than him, and he felt like between him and Don King, they were, you know, they were, uh, they were just, they were just shafting him over. Basically, they were just, they just didn't, they didn't want to pay him what what he felt that he deserved. And that again, that's a recurring theme. He didn't get paid what he felt he deserved, uh, and I think that's why his boxing career. Uh, failed really. I think that there's a lot of it is is choices he made uh, as to why his boxing career didn't go the way it went. But then we we flip the coin over and we look at what happens outside of the ring during all this period of time, and he, it all starts off so well for him, uh, and then he starts to get involved in a few crazy incidents outside of the ring. Uh, the first one, the first one that really got me and it absolutely made me laugh was the petrol station incident. Mitch Green, visualize Mitch Green. Filling people's cars up, taking money off them. What did you make of that story? Uh, weird. Like, just weird. Just, just like, I mean, talk me through how you would feel if you saw, because Mitch Green, 6'5", looks like a cartoon character from the Warriors at the gas station. What would you think? Like, I mean, that's just, my word is weird. Like, a lot of these stories around Mitch, it's just weird. It's bizarre. It's it's not normal. No, it's not normal behavior, is it? I mean, you know, he talks about it later on down the line in an interview that, you know, it's just something he did. He, he always went to go and fill his tank up and he always uh, didn't get... He felt like he wasn't being attended to in the right way, so he'd just go and do it himself. And then the fact that then he starts going doing other people's for them and taking the money off them, he's like, hang on a minute. Like, it's a really strange, peculiar behavior. But then if you're someone... He was like a, a five foot eight, five foot nine white guy going to a petrol station. You got a six foot five black man muscular, uh, who you know who's holding a nozzle like that, and you're thinking, okay, what's going on here? And then he goes to put it in, and you just kind of look at it, and you're thinking, right, this is a bit strange. And then he's like, right, give me the money, and you're thinking, right, this doesn't seem right. And the fact that although Mitch had a bigger opinion of himself at the time, he he was known. In, in New York and around New York. He was known. It wasn't like he wasn't known as an individual. Maybe not the same celebrity status as Tyson, of course, but he was known. He was very well known. So the fact that, you know, you probably will have had people that will have known who he was going to that petrol station. You're thinking, imagine turning up and seeing Mitch Green filling people's cars up and taking money off them. You're like, hang on a minute, this just seems really, really peculiar. Uh, but that, that was just really the beginning, wasn't it? Like, the, the, <laughs> the biggest thing I that feel got... Me, Oh, I was going to say, I feel like the undertone is he had deep self-hatred. That's like a, a undertone is like he'd put himself in these really self-destructive spots over and over again. The biggest thing that got to me, Luke, was the fact that he couldn't drive. The fact that he really, really quite evidently couldn't. Well, he could drive, but he couldn't drive very well. The amount of traffic incidents he was involved in, the amount of times he crashed into parked cars. Uh, I, I, you know, it's unbelievable. Like, there's no way this guy. How did he get a license? Like, you know, how how would he? How was he even approved to be on the road? Like, I, I, I never understood, like, how he got away with it. And and what made me laugh even more was again, I'm jumping a bit forward in the timeline with him. But when he has that interview uh, about how many sort of misdemeanors and traffic offenses he's been involved in and he was told it was 54 and he actually corrected the reporter and said actually no it's 56 so he's acknowledging the fact that he knows he's been there so many times but yet he still carries on doing it well and i think that 
like the way this is a crazy thing to think about, but I thought, how is the character from Halloween Michael Myers a better driver than Mitch Green? Because if you think about it, Michael Myers was institutionalized, what is three or four years old, and he's following the rules of the road, wearing a ski mask that looks like William Shatner stopping at all the traffic signals no cops are pulling him over M- mitch green is in jamaica queens or wherever he's at and he's basically every day that he gets behind the wheel there's going to be an infraction it's either like he's the most lazy driver or he's the most unself-aware person when he gets behind the wheel of a car well that and the fact that he was taking pcp or angel dust quite a lot of times <laughs> quite many times there were many highs throughout uh, mitch green's career and it wasn't in the boxing ring, it was the highs that he had outside of the boxing ring on PCP, which I think sort of it helped. It helped him in his persona. I think it exaggerated him in his persona because you know the amount of times that obviously he must have got himself in that position where he was he was high as a kite and he, he was just getting himself involved in all these different situations. And, and I'm not surprised like things started to, to sort of flag for him. You know, he weren't making the right decisions about his boxing career. He was cutting his nose off to spite his face. He's crashing into parked cars all the time. He's he's taking he's taking PCP, so he's he's involved in narcotics. How he how he got away with as much as he did for as long as he did that was what was actually surprising to me, to be honest with you. Like it was like every story involved him being on PCP at some point. Like it wasn't even uh, any any stories where it was just ultimately his mental health, which I think did play a part in in his life, of course, but having the PCP, a mixture of mental health, maybe a bit of pers- bipolar pers- personality disorder, something along them lines, I think was was definitely sort of where he where he was at that period of time, and that that's it's it's sad really because I always say the word sad with a lot of these stories because it is because you can kind of see. Uh, even though it's all in retrospect that we're covering it, you can kind of see as you go through the timeline of the story that this guy's life's just sort of going down this one path and it's not the path that he needs to be on to get where he really wants to be. It's just this this wrong path that's leading him to all these actions which have consequences which ultimately affect his career. Uh, and as we finish the episode up, we're talking about like his career as a, as a fighter. His career spanned 25 years, but yet... What was it? I think it was about twenty odd fights he had. Not it wasn't very many, was it? Like in total. Well, it like it's kind of like it hits this point where he fights Tyson. It's almost like the Bible, right? Not to get less controversial, but it's like before Tyson and after Tyson. It's like he fights Tyson, and then there's like there's the Burbick fight, which is a close fight. Tyson beats him, and then there's a whole lot of like mess. And I feel like this was the this is like the chaotic Johnny Tapia story. Johnny lived a life of chaos, but he was still functional. Mitch Green lived a chaotic life and could never um, function. If if Johnny Tapia is like the Johnny Thunders of rock and roll, I don't know, like, who would this be? This would be like the Towns Van Zant or something of music where it's like they could never quite put it together to get who they were. But I will say the thing that, I think didn't do him any favors was he had such a drug addiction issue. His wild behavior was excused as him just being high a lot, which didn't help because I think that that allowed him to make even worse decisions because people were like, Oh man, here's big Mitch green. Who's intimidating. And he smokes like this dangerous drug that could kill you. 
um, who knows what he'll say. And I think that that in many ways, that kind of hurt him. So 1988 was the probably the most difficult year of his life up to that point. 1988 was obviously the same year that he was involved in the altercation with Mike Tyson, which I think we've got to spend some time talking about that because that ultimately is what I think the casual boxing audience will probably know him for as being most famous for, infamous for. They don't look at Mitch Green and think, Mitch Green, fantastic, amazing boxer. They think Mitch Green, the guy that had the scrap outside Dapper Dan's with Mike Tyson. And I think... That, that's the sad part about how his boxing career, you know, flailed, really, was the fact that that's how people know him. And you speak about Mitch Blood Green to anybody, you know, who's who's under the age of sort of 25, and they'll just think of probably Mike Tyson and the Dapper Dan story. But that story then, Luke, we give it in about three or four different perspectives. Uh, so we had Tyson's perspective, which come from Tyson himself. He, he spoke about this on his own podcast. We had Mitch's perspective on this. We had the perspective... Uh, of his driver, we had the uh, Tyson's driver, we had the perspective of other people on this. Well, now you had the chance to actually go through all the different versions of events. Like, what do you think actually happened? Who do you believe? Whose story do you believe? Do you believe that Tyson was just self defending himself against an angry Mitch Green, or do you believe that Mitch Green was just being calm and casual, and ultimately it was Tyson that was in the wrong here? I think everybody was crazy in this situation. Like, I think, I think Mitch Green probably started it and I don't think Tyson helped anything once Mitch, I think Mitch sparked the fuse. And then I think once Tyson felt the fuse, he had to escalate. And I mean, this, this probably was, I did my own deep dive research where I went and looked up Sinbad and Vlad TV interviews. And I mean, this is, this would have been really scary to see in life. Because this is this is and then the Tyson story that he was knocking him out and he just got kept getting back up. I mean, it sounds funny when you use words, but like imagine if someone made a cartoon illustration of it. like this is like the, the WWF, how they do those illustrations of pro wrestlers abusing alcohol and doing these crazy stories. Imagine a cartoon of Mike Tyson or Mitch Green telling this story. Because it it literally, and I think that's why both of these fighters mean so much to me. They're literally in their prime, like cartoon characters. They're like hood cartoon characters at a store for like just wealth. Here's a store in like a kind of a rough neighborhood of expensive stuff. And they're just fighting in it. <laughs> uh, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. Because I, I think about Mike Tyson's version of events more than anything. Like the fact that Mike Tyson's just talking about him. He's popping up like Night of the Living Dead, I think, were the words he was using. Uh, and I was just thinking to myself, can you imagine, like, Mike Tyson at this point, baddest man on the planet, you know, I think he probably was the undisputed champion 1988, I think, at the time, for, for, for what I recall. Uh, he's on the cusp of obviously fighting Frank Bruno uh, not too far away, and it was as a result of this fight that he ended up uh, having to reschedule that fight with uh, with our Frank Bruno. Uh, but just imagine walking around the corner and seeing... Mike Tyson and Mitch Green, you know, two big guys. I mean, Tyson was, what, 5'11", Mitch Green 6'5". So Mitch Green's physically more intimidating from, from the outset if you're looking from a distance. But then you think what Mike Tyson could do in a ring and you think to yourself, God, this is just two two guys from the hood just really going to about to scrap it out. The fact that he had to put Mitch Green down 
sort of multiple times and the fact that he just kept popping back up I just couldn't believe like what I was what I was reading and what I was visualizing in my own mind and there are very very few pictures out there but there are a couple of pictures of uh, this incident a little bit grainy because obviously the cameras weren't as good back then but there are a couple of grainy pictures of this on the internet so I do implore anybody watching or listening to go and have a quick look at that because you can kind of get the sort of feel for for the story once you sort of see the pictures and you hear the story you can kind of put two and two together in your own imagination as to how this went down but what made me laugh the most was the fact that he was obviously high on pcp midstream but he just kept on getting back up and in the matter the fact that tyson was saying he was fighting like a 10 year old <laughs> he fought better in the ring against him when he'd fought him earlier a couple of years earlier than he did uh, in that particular moment and it just sounded to me like a one-sided beating had took place and that Mitch Green weren't just, he just weren't going to stay down. And the moment when he's, Tyson's driver said, look, I can't go anywhere. The guy's under the wheel. He won't let me drive anywhere. And I'm like, really? Is this this how bad it was? Uh, when going through these stories then, um, what what are your emotions about it? I mean, my emotions were just absolute laughter. I just couldn't help but laugh at like what was going on, at the, at the descriptions of uh, how things went. Uh, I thought of someone in my own life who had drug addiction issues, and I remembered the decline from them being like an artistic genius to them going into bad addiction. And Mitch Green and this story in particular reminded me of like that transition because the person I was thinking of had had an incident where they kind of like pooped their pants at a party and chased like a, they chased like a, uh, what's it called? Like a a street cleaner. Like he was chasing the street cleaner to get like because he wanted the street cleaner to clean him off. And then the street cleaner called the cops because this guy is chasing him. The cops are laughing. They think it's funny. And the guy was dealing with some serious issues through alcoholism, but it was disguised as this like funny story that people were like, oh, man. That's pretty humorous, but things just kept getting worse and worse from that point. It never. And to me, what this story signified for me, it was funny. But this was also like Mitch Green wasn't the same fighter anymore. He was a guy suffering from serious drug abuse issues. And I think Tyson even hints at it that the guy that he was fighting in the streets wasn't the same guy. And that's kind of sad because the time elapsed wasn't that much longer no it wasn't was it i think was it two years i think was it 86 um that they fought and i think it was 85 or 86 them two fought and then it was 88 this incident occurred so what two three years at best uh and in two three years there'd been this rapid decline really in his in his skills but again it's down to the drug abuse isn't it the drug abuse is making him this way it's making him act a certain way but what makes me laugh is obviously the story of, of, of from mitch's side it's like mitch's telling you this story in his own words about how he was sort of cool calm and collected he goes to tyson and says like you know what's up what's going on kind of thing you know what you're doing in the neighborhood not in an aggressive way but you know all of a sudden then other people are getting involved he sees mike tyson turn one of his rings around uh signifying that he was going to use it as a sort of makeshift knuckle duster and starts to attack him and he says that tyson's entourage starts to hold him back uh, as in mitch to so that tyson could get a, f- a few free shots on him so mitch's version of events are completely different than what tyson's are so it's like who do you believe do you believe wh- which version of crazy do you believe because you've got tyson's version of crazy and you've got mitch's 
drug-fueled version of crazy. So it's hard to kind of believe one entire story, but I kind of get the impression that there was obviously provocation involved from whichever side it was, and ultimately it led to Mitch Green being just beating around outside on the street and 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 then the f- <laughs> the fact that then he tur- he turns up like the police turn up after the incident occurs uh, and he and he's just within the midst of people in the neighborhood like chatting to them like he's just had this beat down off Mike Tyson and yet he's still shirtless walking around uh acting like him you know acting like his persona like as if nothing has just happened and I couldn't I couldn't fathom how he could just in his mind, could just sort of switch from one moment to another and, and not realise that he's just took a beating. Uh, but then he uses all that and that incident to continue this sort of hatred towards him, doesn't he, for many, many years? My bad, I missed the button. It um, For me, I feel like this story is not unlike boxing commentary. It's fueled by an unreliable narrator. So... We don't have any point of reference where we go, okay, this guy's reasonable. I believe Tyson more, but I think the truth is neither guy probably at that time perceived things actually. I think that Mitch Green was high on drugs. He had severe anger towards himself, and he wanted to be Mike Tyson. And when Tyson was somewhere near him, he went to fuel an argument and Tyson was at the height of knocking people out and being intense. And when someone came to him in that situation, he was not going to deescalate a situation. And I think that it was like a very, very situation, scary situation. And thank goodness it didn't happen now because the way people use guns nowadays, this would be a much scarier situation because now back in the day, people used to fight. Nowadays, it feels like it's a small situation and people want to shoot. So I do think that this story, sadly, is dated because of the fact that no weapons were involved. Yeah, I think that's... I don't really condone the violence aspects of it. You know, it's two guys having a fight. But I kind of condone the fact that it's better than two guys trying to stab or shoot each other. You know, like you rightly pointed out, the the society that we live in today seems to involve some type of of weapon uh, to be able to win a fight. And and that's just the society and the time that we live in and the way people have been influenced by the internet and social media and and, and Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, whatever it is they've gone on and consumed on. They've they've used whatever they've seen on there and they've thought, you know, this is the type of culture that we need to to be in now. Whereas then it was just two straight up guys that had a problem with each other that, you know, ended up getting involved in a fight and ultimately, you know, Mitch walked away from it with his pride hurt probably more than his than himself and Tyson walked away with it from obviously a hairline fracture which delayed one of his fights. So, you know, ultimately these two guys did walk away from it, uh, relatively unscathed I'd like to say, but then it just sort of continues for Mitch Green. This envy towards Mike Tyson continues and carries on, doesn't it? It continues for years later. He always seems to have have this issue, no matter where he is or who he's speaking to, which reporter he speaks to. He always has to bring Mike Tyson. And then the fact that he's using all these different derogatory words to to, to talk about Tyson, because of Tyson's speech and the way Tyson speaks, um, he was using these, these parts of Mike Tyson's... Um, you know, appearance and the way he presents himself to, 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 to sort of use derogatory terms and the way you could get away with it as well. Like, you could just tell looking at some of the videos of the interviews that, you know, he was allowed to call Mike Tyson a homo and a sissy and it's like, this is just not acceptable now in this day and age. But then, 
like broadcasters could do that. It's like you could get away with doing that. It was like there was no no repercussions for for saying things like that. Whereas like now he'd be reprimanded completely for it. Uh, one of the other things I think that we haven't touched on yet, which I'm looking forward to going through, is Rikers Island. Like uh, the the time that he loved to seem to spend at Rikers Island and the way that sort of give him this uh, sense of I'm trying to think of the right words to use for it. So every time he went in prison, every time he was in Rikers Island, did a stint there, he felt like he was the king of the jungle there. He felt like it gave him this sense of importance being in Rikers Island. Like, you mentioned how people would come to him if they needed certain things or, you know, he'd, he'd get fed better meals than other people. He felt like he was the uh, like the king of Rikers Island during the stints that he was there. And surely that must have kept that mentality of his going for the years that it did uh, because he felt like he was adored by other people within Rikers Island so he came out still feeling that same way and still feeling like he could he could act the same way he was during the early 90s when it leads into him coming back and, and getting back in the ring yeah the Rikers Island to me it served as a training camp for him and the thing with Mitch Green I saw was he, he was someone who it seemed like, whether he knew it or not, wanted structure. And when he was in Rikers Island, now there's a schedule, now there's a routine. And it seemed like that was as crazy as it sounds and not in a good way. The structure of Rikers Island seemed to always benefit him because there was a, a format to the day that if Mitch Green was led to his own devices in his prime, he just would kind of roam. And he'd go all different types of places wherever he went. And it felt like, as you said, his ego was boosted. Rikers would make him, he'd be in tremendous shape and he'd come out and he'd basically feel like he's this ultimate alpha male. Yeah. And that's kind of giving that false sense of security, I think. Is, is what I'm getting at with these stints in Rikers Island. It gave him that false sense of security that he'd take away, that false confidence that he'd take away with him and still feel like he he was, you know, in, in, to a degree, invincible. Uh, and, and in terms of his boxing career, when he comes out of the stints of Rikers Island for certain incidents that, that happen throughout his career and his life, he comes back to boxing and obviously they're talking about putting him in with, with some, some really good names, you know, like the, the Holyfields, the Foremans of the time, and then it leads all the way up until... Uh, Mike Tyson comes out of prison, but before Mike Tyson comes out of prison, he's interviewed uh, about Mike Tyson going into prison when he's sentenced for rape. <laughs> the, his description of, of what it'd be like for Mike Tyson in prison, again, was uh, it just really gives you the mindset, doesn't it? It really gives you the insight into what he was really thinking about at the time and the way he viewed prison, the way he viewed Tyson, the way he viewed uh, Rikers Island as a whole. And, and, and it, it really kind of made me sort of understand like where he was at at that time like I can't understand some of his choices of course but I can understand sort of where his headset was at and and why he was still still having these still had this envy towards Tyson even though Tyson you know had literally ruined his career he'd been convicted of rape he was going to prison and he still he still couldn't help but have this hatred towards him I think Kanye West said it in one of those songs. I forget the name of the song, but it was everything that I'm not made me everything I am. And I think that kind of sums up Mitch Green's envy of Mike Tyson. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. I think that's a perfect example again of, of Mitch Green 
and and where he was at at that time. So Charles Farrell then, Charles Farrell wrote a, a really good article a couple of years ago on Deadspin, and I think that was the most insightful piece of information out there, really, into the mind of, of Mitch Green, because obviously Mitch Green's not really done a lot in, in this social media generation to, for us to be able to, to pick apart and, and talk about. He's not done a lot. There is obviously one video, uh, which we'll mention uh, in a few moments, but Charles Farrell and his article and his his exploitation of Mitch Green, his admittance of exploitation of Mitch Green, but his general conversations and ideas and the way he wanted to try and steer Mitch Green's career from, from the moment he met him was a really interesting insight and it kind of opened my eyes a little bit more, but it also made myself and Johnston feel like our assumptions of what promoters can be really like have uh, always been true. And Charles Farrell proved it to me by by writing that article and talking about the exploitation of of Mitch Green. Yeah, I mean, it for me, it's just there was a story. I'm this is going to be the worst answer to a question, but it's really what this story keeps going back to was once I was driving down the street, and there was like this obvious kind of like hard hard life native american guy who was wearing this really sketchy dick tracy jacket and his face just showed pain and it kind of was like a face you'd be afraid of and i remember being like man that's a scary looking guy i hope i don't run into him and then one day i'm coming home from work and i see that guy and he goes behind where i'm living and then he comes out with something and I go, isn't that just something? The laws of attraction. I brought the guy to my house. And I feel like the feeling that I felt towards that guy is probably the feeling a lot of people felt towards Mitch Green over and over again, where it was just like, I really hope I don't run into this guy because it's just intimidating. And that's kind of like what kind of my thought. So, with with the Charles Farrell information, then with that in mind, with the the conversations about him getting back in the ring, um, the way that he, he wasn't able to rekindle his career from then onwards, uh, was very interesting. But one of the most interesting things to come of it was the the story that he mentioned about when Tyson was was coming out of prison and they needed a comeback opponent for him, and they spoke about sending Mitch Green into the prison where Tyson was at to basically go and sucker punch Mike Tyson to reignite their feud once more because, like they rightly pointed out at the time, this is way before social media uh, and YouTube and everything else, like, what would people talk about if Mitch Green went to prison and punched Mike Tyson in the face? That's the fight they'd want to see. They wouldn't want to see any other fight for Mike Tyson when he came out of prison. Now, it was quite a quite a crazy harebrained idea, but, you know, in some ways, as much as they don't condone like them sending him in to go and punch him and, and, and cause the controversy there, but in terms of a, a business standpoint, you think, bloody hell, that would absolutely, that would sell, wouldn't it? That would have sold even bigger than, than what it did when he came out of prison. I mean, he was a feared street guy. Just put it what it was. He was a feared street guy, known street guy. And Tyson was viewed as the baddest man in the world. So you got the baddest man in the streets versus the baddest man in the ring. So, I mean, imagine if there's controversy outside of the ring, controversy sells. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, it was a crazy idea, but Mitch, ultimately Mitch didn't buy it. Initially, I think he, he did buy it, but as soon as, as soon as it mentions Tyson, as soon as he talks about making Tyson 
get the attention again. Mitch is just going back to the fact that he doesn't want Tyson to have the attention. He doesn't want to provide Tyson with the uh, the platform, even though it was going to happen regardless of whether it was Mitch Green or not, which it didn't turn out to be. It was always going to happen that Mike Tyson was, was going to be a big talking point about where he was at when he came out of prison, which it was. It, it was obviously for, for the next three years once he was released from prison with all the fights he was involved in. But Mitch Green, again, I felt like he... In a way, he cut his nose off again to spite his face. You know, he's talking about not wanting to give Tyson this opportunity. Mitch Green probably would have got the career biggest payday for that if that would have happened. And I know it's all ifs, buts and maybes. But again, he's he's making this decision where it's like, it's this it's hatred towards Tyson. It just blinded him, massively blinded him because... You know, he could have had the biggest payday of his career and that could have sorted him out. Well, you think it would have sorted him out. It probably wouldn't have done. It probably would have just gave him more money to go and, and go and buy PCP with. But, you know, it, it would have put him in a better financial position in the long term because he would have been paid a lot of money for that. But yet he decided not to do it. Uh, and ultimately, that was the idea that was that was that that came up with Charles Farrell and Al Braverman, who was obviously working for Don King at the time. So... You know, the, these, these harebrained, crazy ideas were, were quite interesting to find out about that, that particular moment where, you know, it gives you that fantasy feeling of what could have happened if Mitch Green and Tyson would have fought. I mean, at the time, I think uh, Mitch Blood Green was about 36, 37, maybe 38. Yeah, he would have been a lot older. He probably wouldn't have been as good. It might have been a, probably a blowout, two-round, three-round blowout. You don't know, but still... The, the thought of it kind of just makes you sort of think, wow, just imagine if that would have actually gone down the way it did. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these what ifs. That's why, like, in my notes, um, my modern equivalent, the guys that stand out are kind of like the Broners and the Zab Judas, where it's like we have a lot of, like, I get Zab had the Floyd fight, but how many times do you hear from Zab himself where he didn't really fully train for the Floyd fight the way that he probably should have? And Broner isn't, half of the Broner story going to be like there's the DeMarco fight. And then every fight after the DeMarco fight, he just never looked amazing. And I feel like Mitch green was a guy who is similar to them, but without the promoters that had belief in him or a promoter getting him to that point, because the talent was obviously there, but he was put into these fights like against Trevor Burbick and Mike Tyson where they were very even fights and he was living a chaotic life. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and I think that leads me nicely onto the, the promotional aspect of it and, and what Charles Farrell talked about and how he openly said he exploited Mitch Blood Green. And obviously Mitch wasn't the only fighter that he, he, he said he'd exploited, but he looked at a videotape of himself back in that period of time and he looked at it and thought, hang on, this is not, I don't like this guy, as in himself. He doesn't like the guy he was at the time, but he was clearly exploiting these these individuals to, to get what he needed to get out of it at the time. But it was a revelation for me because I, I don't know why people don't talk about this more because obviously in, in, in where we are at the moment with the current boxing landscape and you think of certain promoters, certain big-time promoters now, and you always have this sort of, gut feeling i know i do i always have this gut feeling it's like no matter what they say to you you know they could sell sand to the arabs but ultimately do they really always have the best interest of the fighters at heart i've, I've always been skeptical of that and charles farrell all he did when when looking for his article and, and putting them extracts in for the episode it made me realize that actually i bet there's a lot of promoters out there that are exactly him exactly what he was doing at that time 
When I isn't that the classic stereotype of all boxing promoters is that it's like you put on the fight. These guys give us lifelong memories. They get a certain sum of money. Maybe there's some form of a residual check, but they're basically being paid. And now the people in suits have ways to monetize it beyond that night. And you're just getting the money from that single night with probably limited social security, limited 401ks. It's a lot of self-navigating and self-knowledge with guys who probably don't even have a college degree, maybe don't even have high school education. And they're making the biggest money that their family has ever seen in their life, where it's like the first thing people want to do is show people they're wealthy, right? Rather than make investments to set up their future, it's like we need to show our wealth because we've been so poor. And I think this is a classic trope where sure promoters exploit, but also the fighters do themselves no favors. I don't know how to fix the system. It's just this is an inherent issue with boxing because we deal with people coming from rags to riches in such a manner. I think there's some fighters that do break away from that though, isn't there? There's certain fighters that have had the, the either the right people around them or they've educated themselves well enough to break away from, from that side of things. And they've either gone and set up their own little promotion, so to speak, or they've they've gone independent and, and they've cut the middleman out essentially and they've dealt with it all and you know they've just maybe outsourced somebody to come in and do what they need to do for them to, to get the fight on and get the capacity moving. But you know, I think Canelo's a good example, perfect example of, of that now, the way he's he's been able to sort of break break the chain and, and break away from from handlers and, and do things on his own. Mayweather was 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 the other one, uh, I think in modern times that, that did it quite earlier on in his career than than what I anticipated he would do. And you know, there are a few exceptions to the rule of that, but I think there are the majority uh, of fighters, as you rightly pointed out, are, are either not educated, not by the you know, not by their their own fault, not because it's their fault why they're not educated. It's like they're not educated enough to understand that some of these decisions being made above them are not always the right decisions for them. And it's only in retrospect and in hindsight that a lot of these guys find out, especially in years to come down the line when they've lived the life of being the professional boxer and maybe they've fallen on, on hard times. And on Twitter quite recently, Donald Curry in particular, you know, you look at Donald Curry and he's, he's, Donald Curry's son's using Donald Curry's Twitter account to talk about getting help for him. And it's like... Donald Curry was, you know, pound for pound, one of the best. I think he was rated the best, one of the best guys out there in the 1980s. And it's like, you hear about these stories about guys like that now who are at a point where, you know, they literally don't really have much and they need a bit of help from somebody and everybody's trying to rally around to help them. And it's a sad story, but it's a sad story that happens too many times for me. So that's where the whole exploitation conversation, when we had it on the episode about Mitch, it really... It really just reaffirmed my sort of knowledge of what I believe about about the sport and the inner workings of the sport. And I think hearing it from somebody like Charles, who who was involved in that side of the sport, I think it was quite educating and eye-opening for me personally. And I suppose there'll be many that will have their own assumptions or interpretations of how promoters and managers work. But when someone lays it on a plate to you like that, like literally saying, I exploited this guy... And I suppose it opens up this can of worms where you start to feel like everybody does it. Well, and also it's a pretty hateable statement. Like that's not a, that's not like a good thesis argument for like, yeah, I mean, I took advantage of this guy who I did like, it's just, 
kind of a crummy thing to do. I, I'd say I was watching fight week for this week and I was seeing some fighter interviews and I sadly am starting to notice trends with some fighters that are modern where I'm like, ah oh, man, in the next 10 to 50, because you know, as well as I know, like money is relative, right? You get a big check. You've got to pay taxes on it. You've got to get all these things. And I, I've been stressing this, not just for boxing. I think that in our colleges and even in high school, we need to have tax education where young people understand how to pay taxes under, because I don't understand why that's not a prerequisite in high school is taxes. And I swear this is getting to a point, but if you go on to be an athlete, I think there needs to be some form of an AA degree or something in terms of here's management. This is what you need to be able to do with financial literacy. Like if you're a, we'll go to the top end. If you're an NBA track player where it's obvious you're going to be one and done, why aren't all the classes they're taking relevant to their money management, relevant to promotions, as opposed to being like, okay, you're going to go to English, you'll go for four classes, and then you're going to miss for the rest of the year because you're going to be on the basketball team, or I think they have to play one semester and then they skip the next because they're going to the NBA. I really feel like because athletes make a lot of money, people have no sympathy for the exploits, whether it's the top or the low, but athletes are largely exploited because people just have no sympathy. They're doing a lot of people have jobs they hate and they're saying, well, I don't like what I do. And you get to play ball or you get to punch someone. So I have no sympathy, but the, fact of the matter is there's a lot of faceless people making a ton of money on the backs of athletes that we yeah, don't absolutely. ever have to we don't ever have to criticize and that i always am on the side of the athletes because like for the pga tour it's like a billion dollar industry and a lot of the players right now are saying wait we basically get like three weeks off on the whole year and we have to play for our salary. We don't get like a set base pay and you're asking it's, it's, I just, I feel like the whole sports industry is a scam against the athletes and boxing is like the biggest one where everything is weighted against the athlete rant over. <laughs> Perfect. I think that kind of, I kind of, it reaffirms my sort of faith that there are people out there like yourself, uh, like Johnston, who, who have always said and always been consistent with their opinion of, of what they really feel goes on in the inner workings of not just the sport of boxing, but many other sports. And I think going back to the, the point of the episode with Mitch Green, when Charles Farrell mentioned about, like, he'd literally exploited the guy, it's like that then you feel sorry for him. You feel sorry for him because of the way he is. You feel sorry for him because of you know, ultimately no one's put an arm around him and, and tried to steer him in the right direction. Uh, he's just been left to kind of do what he's done and, and get involved in all these different incidents. And uh, some of them are hilarious. Some of them are quite sad in retrospect. Um, but I suppose when you look at his, his career as a whole, you look at like moments of his boxing career, like what really stands out to you? There's, to me, there wasn't a lot. Like apart from his, I look at his amateur career and I think his amateur career was absolutely spot on. Really, when you think about it, but his professional career, he weren't able to transition that success as an amateur to a professional. And it wasn't because he didn't have the talent. It was just because there were decisions made by by him or people around him that that weren't the right decisions for him, which ultimately led to what I would consider to be a wasted talent. 
I would say if you go back to revisit his career, watch his vignette for the HBO fight against Mike Tyson, because that video package first off is like so dated. It's like the advent of graffiti. It's like, what's that graffiti documentary that people it's like, uh, I forget, but they did like a New York city graffiti documentary at that time. And it, it feels like the, they were basically making a vignette in that style. And it's so dated and he's out in these areas. And I think that he's a time capsule of lost talent from a certain era. And like, normally we're talking about guys like Zora Foley where the footage is really bad and we don't have it. The interesting about Mitch green is it's close enough to a time where we can understand where, when you go back and look at it, you can kind of visualize what went wrong because it's close enough to our era where you can get those glimpses. I think it's a shame that he was never really involved in any of the fights in the early nineties heavyweight boom, because there were so many interesting heavyweights in that era. And I know his record wasn't the greatest, but it, I feel like if he was around nowadays, sure. It would have been exploitive, but he would have faced all the guys, you know, he would have been like a Derek Chisora. He would have been like one of like a Dillian white. He would have been one of these characters where he's going to fight guys, even if he loses. And I think the biggest shame is, he kind of ran himself out of the industry by basically threatening Don King. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we know how powerful Don King was uh, at that particular period of time as well. He, he, he practically between him and Bob Arum, they, they ran boxing, didn't they really at that, at that time. And they'd had done for quite a while. And I think you think about like the, the threats he were making to people, the incidents he was involved in. There was one incident I actually failed to mention earlier. And I just want to I highlight it again. The the moment when he, uh, he <laughs> the moment when he goes to the Larry Holmes David Bay press conference, which I, had absolutely nothing to do with him, and he ends up nearly getting his thumb bitten off by uh, Mister Mister D, uh, Larry Holmes's bodyguard. That was just one moment where I felt to myself that set the tone for the rest of the story of Mitch's uh, Mitch's life. But imagine like an Ellie Secback, right? Like if it's a press conference, Ellie Secback, Fight Hype, one of these kind of like candid camera people at press conferences, Mitch Green would just show up to pretty much every relevant New York fight and he'd just be there. And he was basically like a podcaster. Like if this guy was a podcaster when he was relevant, he would probably have one of the most entertaining boxing programs because it would just be this guy who does crazy stuff. And he was like, seeking it like i feel like the sad part is mitch green wanted to be a star and he knew he was a star but he didn't really know what his path to stardom was so he'd just show up places and be aggressive and i feel like the big miss misnomer was that he didn't find a form of entertainment like he was meant to be an actor he was meant to be like a a villain in a movie or or some type of like candid interviewer guy where he's intimidating but he asks people questions and then it's awkward and i feel like he he knew this about himself but he never knew how to get on the right track i agree i think he was definitely born to be an entertainer whether you say that's down to the pcp whether you say that's down to his persona i think his persona definitely had a lot to 
to, to, to play a part in, in, in his story. And I think, like, you talk about, again, you mentioned, like, WWF earlier, and you talk about certain uh, guys that live the gimmick. Uh, Ric Flair, he's lived that gimmick all his life. Like, he, he still lives that gimmick now outside of the ring. He's still Ric Flair, the wrestler, as well as Ric Flair, the man. And it's like Mitch Green was always Mitch Green, the, Mitch Green, the fighter, and Mitch Green, the persona, uh, wherever he went, no matter which TV show he went on. And I think... Yeah, I think he was. Um, I think there was a lot of potential opportunities for him to to be involved in some form of entertainment, and it was just it was just sad. It was just sad that it, it didn't work out the the way it probably should have done for him. And I think the, the the upside to it all, and the upside to his whole story, was that you know as of as of last year, uh, there was actually a, a fan, a, a fan that really wanted to. Get in touch with Mitch Green and 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 enjoyed Mitch Green's persona and enjoyed him in the ring and and wanted to somehow reach out to him, and they actually managed to reach out to him. And now Sky Sports in the UK uh, published an article in in I think it was September October last year 2020 about this story about this fan who had actually found Mitch Green actually searched him up and called Mitch Green and he answered and he's like he's like is this Mitch Green and he's like yeah who's this and it's, and then all of a sudden these two guys hit it off. Uh, and and by his account, you know, Mitch Green's actually living a completely different life now. He's completely toned down that that soul glow persona, and he's just a normal guy. He's actually like a Bonnie and Christian now, and he goes to church, and you know, the the, the complete opposite of what we knew Mitch Green as. You know, growing up, he's like he's gone from one extreme to another. And but isn't least... this that story? Isn't this how these stories always end? The OG in your neighborhood is always the guy that was like going through the most crazy stuff. And then they try to save everyone else because they could never have someone to like, I feel like the Mitch Green story isn't over because I could see him coaching a real hard headed kid from New York and him being like a good role model because what, but to me, Mitch Green, and I kind of relate to this in my own life. It looked like he was looking, and I don't know the details of this, but he looked like he was looking for a father figure. He was looking yeah. like he was looking for someone to say, this is what we're going to do. We're setting a plan. And it was like this. He just wanted someone to be there. And I feel like in this later half of his life, what might be a great redemption for him would getting to be be that person for someone else. And I really hope Mitch gets to do that. Me and Johnston said at the end of the episode, look, you know, the, ep- the title of the episode is Never Clean Mitch Green. So, first of all, when you see that title, you think to yourself, that's quite a provocative title, maybe even as far as clickbaity title. But at the end of the day, we, we kind of titled that as that's what, he's, that's what he was like, whether it was he wasn't clean off PCP or he just wasn't clean uh, in general with his misdemeanors and his, in, his, in his general life. But it's not because we want to sit here and slander Mitch. You know, we, we had an absolute ball doing the episode because we found some of the stories unbelievable to the point where it's like you either have to laugh or you have to cry at the guy for, for the sadness of where he was at that time in his career ultimately we got more laughs out of it than we did sadness uh, but when we when we come towards the end of his story and we you know you start to realize actually there are accounts of him you know turning this completely around and then this redemption story is the second half of his life that's when you start to 
change your opinion a little bit of this crazy guy from from the 1980s early 90s who, who was derogatory towards Mike Tyson who had this fight with Mike Tyson and you start to root for him and you know, like you said there's another story still to be told and and we said we could we would love to try and get hold of Mitch some way shape or form where we could have this conversation with him and and try and present his his side of, of the story uh you know from the horse's mouth is always the best story and we'd love to know like where he's at mentally now what 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 he looks back on during that period of time and how he perceives all that now and ultimately like has he got any ambitions would he want to be back involved in boxing or did boxing just take too much away from him you know as a person we we said if anybody could get hold of him reach out or in any way shape or form we would love to get him on the show as a whole and we'd love to get him to tell his side of the story of, of where he's at now because you know we want to see these stories end well we don't it might be the darker side of boxing, but we'd like to see the stories end as well as possible. Because ultimately, these guys provide, you know, entertainment for us. Whether it's in the ring, whether it's out of the ring, they put the bodies and the lives on the line. So why not have these guys be able to share some of these elements of these stories and and actually put people that may have these assumptions about them straight? You know, we, we when we've put this story together, we've only gone off what information is available. There's a lot of historical news reports out there. There's a lot of information from interviews that are out there. A lot of reports from different journalists that spoke to Mitch Charles Farrell's Deadspin article. You know, again, you can't you can't you can't really get any closer to Mitch than that. I don't think unless you actually speak to Mitch himself. So it'd be really interesting to hear hear from him and hear what he had to say about it. But handing it back over to you now, Luke. Now you've listen to the full story as as to where things were and and where they've seemingly ended up at this moment in time what's your what's your summary of of Mitch Green well i hope you get a hold of him i'd love to get a hold of him personally too because i think you know how people always go like a live your life with no regrets i think as an interviewer or as someone reading a story i want someone who has a couple of regrets because some of those regrets are some of the most fascinating things And I think someone that lives with no regrets is someone that didn't really have an interesting life because I think regrets come from taking chances and putting yourself out there. And I think what's so fascinating about Mitch's story is it's not like his career didn't work because he didn't try to make it work. He was just troubled. Like he really tried to make the most of his career. And I think that's what's fascinating is like it's one thing if he sat idly by and just let his career go by but he really thought doing all this stuff was probably going to be the ticket for him to get these big fights like he was an active participant really trying to fuel his thing it's just through his lived experience what he viewed as normal society didn't yeah i think you're right and and i've walked away from this story of mitch green yeah again i say i've laughed a few times during the episode and you know i said to you when uh, when we was off the air about how many times I had to stop recording because there's some stories that absolutely had me in stitches. But ultimately, when I come to the end of it, I felt like Mitch Green is a guy that uh, I think, you know, he, he he was the right fit for his era, but he just weren't in the right era, if you know what I mean. Like, you can imagine Mitch Green, the, the only person I can compare to him now who's kind of tried to be a bit like him uh, during the past 10 years is the way Shannon Briggs was. And the way Shannon Briggs goes around, like, let's go, champ, let's go, champ. And Do you think he was influenced? Because in- yeah. Has- yeah, 100%. Absolutely. You can see it, can't you? Look at look at Shannon Briggs now. Look at 
I mean, he's been, been, a, been a bit quiet recently, but think about the times when he was chasing Klitschko around on a bloody hover, and Klitschko's uh, on the uh, on the and he's on the boat, and Klitschko's on the uh, he's on a, it's like a jet ski or something, isn't? It? And he's chasing Klitschko around, and Klitschko's like literally falls off this. Uh, I think it's a surfboard actually, and he falls off it, and then he's chasing him in a restaurant. And you're thinking. That's Mitch Green. That's Mitch Green going to the Larry Holmes press conference. That's Mitch Green confronting Mike Tyson at Dapper Dan's. That's just got Mitch Green's blueprint all over it. That is interesting you bring that up because it is. Like the Dapper Dan's story is basically Shannon Briggs showing up and eating uh, Klitschko's salad. It's like that's the equivalent of it. It's just back then people didn't film these things. He shows up and he's probably saying, give me my rematch. And Tyson's like, no, you're a bum. And then he's like, he probably went to grab his money or something. And then a fight broke. out. It's just, it's kind of interesting how someone, a lot of fans wouldn't know a lot about probably impacts the way they view boxing so much from an entertainment standpoint. Yeah. Just, just imagine social media, Mitch Green and social media. And I know we said this about Johnny Tapia as well, but these type of characters, uh, you know, good or bad, whether you like them or you don't like them, they bring something different to the sport. They they bring a more casual eye onto the sport. So you might have a a lover of golf or a lover of baseball or basketball, but then when you see these events happening involving a, a fighter who eventually is going to go in to get in the ring and, and fight another guy who he's, say, he's been brawling with in the street, it brings the eyes onto the sport. It brings the attention. Whether it's negative or not, it still brings the attention to the sport. And then it brings a different audience in. Sometimes it's it's not always the right audience when you look at some of the YouTubers today and what, what they might be bringing along with them and the sort of demographics of, of what they bring along. But when you get guys that are just mean guys from the street, that have lived a street life, lived a difficult life, guys like that, guys like Mitch Green he would have definitely brought a completely different interest to the sport. He he would have been on different shows across America. He would have had his own podcast by now, as you said earlier. His podcast would have been absolutely entertaining. Imagine him and Mike Tyson sort of on a podcast together, burying the hatchet all these years later, the way Tyson was able to bury the hatchet with Holyfield. I mean, I would love to see that. I would absolutely love to see them two just shooting the breeze about that incident at Dapper Dan's and why there was so much hatred. I'm going to pitch that to someone because I think that that kind of needs to happen because it's like Mitch's life was so much fueled by Tyson. I think as mature adults, that might be something because I think they both they both kind of wanted a bit of what the other one had. I think Tyson wanted to be as respected in the streets as Mitch Green, and Mitch Green wanted to be the level of fighter as Tyson. I think it would be interesting just to see how that conversation would take place because the way people talk to each other and acknowledge people tells you a lot about how they saw the other person. Yeah, I mean, look at Tyson now. Look at his mindset now. Completely different guy from what we knew him as growing up. He's got this different mindset, and and he's great to see. It's great to see where he is at this moment in his life. So if the reports are true about Mitch Green and where he's at in his life now, it'd be really interesting to see them sit down and look at things in retrospect. And, you know, imagine them two saying, look at that, look at that moment when you cracked me and knocked me on the floor, or the moment when I just kept on getting up because I was high off PCP. These are the types of conversations we crave as as fans of the sport and lovers of the sport. We want to see this type of stuff. So 
man, if anybody watches this and listens to this and they think, actually, we know somebody who could put you in touch with, with Mitch Green and get him on the show and actually hear from him, then please do because it'd be an absolute honour to have him on. And, you know, we could hopefully get some really good stories that we've not heard already from him. And I've loved doing this after show. This has probably been my favourite one to date because of the fact that there's been so many different variables to, to Mitch's story because of who he was and because of what he did in in his career outside of the ring more than inside it, it's led to so many different conversations about certain things and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this one well shoot you make my week better and better each and every week i get to talk to you it's super fun uh, who are we talking about next week next week uh this is going to be a really good one this is going to be a really interesting one so next week's episode is all about the late, great Diego Corrales, uh, one of the warriors of the sport. I consider him to be an absolute warrior of the sport. Died way before his time involved in a motorcycle accident. And I think everybody remembers Corrales Castillo, don't they? Everybody thinks of Diego Corrales and Jose Luis Castillo. One of the greatest fights ever. We've covered it for our Legendary Nights podcast before. We've done that story. But we wanted to do... Diego's life outside of the ring as well as inside of the ring and obviously there are elements of his life that you're probably aware of Lukey where I think they need to be they need to be addressed they need to be spoken about and they need to they need to sort of give you an insight into the mind of of this particular individual in the sport and, and what he was like and it's a bit it's a little bit of a different story from what we've had so far I think as well because you know this is not a guy who was like a Johnny Tapia. This is not a guy who was a Randy Turpin or a Zora Foley. This was a completely different guy. You know, different character, come from a different background, had different issues, uh, an untimely demise. Yeah, it's, it's it's got a lot of variables to this story. Under the influence of Diego Corrales is, is the title of the next episode. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about it because it's a guy who I watched his career from start to finish and, and wish I would have got to have seen Corral, Corrales Castillo again. One, it's this is a story that's close to my heart because I'm from basically around the Sacramento area. I've known Ray Woods, who obviously, if you have covered the story, you know who Ray is. So I think that this is going to be one where I can offer a lot of insight, probably not as much about the prison and the death. But I mean, I always kind of Corrales was one of those kind of like folklore people growing up where like you wanted to train like Diego Corrales. He was the great nearest great fighter from our era during that time kind of yeah exactly and i think it's a story that needs to be needs to be brought to the forefront again i mean there's obviously elements of his life that you touched on there that that need to be spoken about and it's not again i stress that it's not because like we want to sit here and make these guys look like crap it's not that it's the, the whole purpose of this podcast really is again as i always say is to bring these elements of these people's lives to, to to the listeners, to people that might not know about it and might not be able to really truly understand who, who these guys were. And when you listen to the stories and when we do the research and we put the, 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 the notes together for it, you know, when we go through it and we think to ourselves, wow, you know, we've learned so much about these characters that you either you'll either walk away absolutely having more respect for them or depending on what the circumstances are, you'll end up thinking less of them. 
you know, because of the information that we put together, the factual information that's out there, uh, where you can present a story to somebody and they can make an informed choice about what they think about this. But I think again with Diego Corrales next week, it's it's not so much that we've put him in you know in a, in a bad light, but there are bad elements of of his, of his life outside of the ring that that have to be discussed. But ultimately, Diego Corrales is is one of my favourite fighters uh, growing up in in that era, and, and and I'm really looking forward to presenting his life and his story, and and obviously elements of his of his boxing career. Well, I'm very excited. It was nice to spend my evening with you, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure you drop us a follow at darker underscore side underscore pod and ITR Boxing YouTube channel, where you'll find the dark side of the after show exclusively. We'll be back next week. Looking forward to it. Podcast Network.